Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 14. The covenant of circumcision. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. What we're doing in our seven o'clock services over the next few months is, is going through some big themes in the Bible and seeing how these big themes impact how we think about God, how we think about each other, how we think about the world in which we live, and to see the way in which God actually hasn't changed, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. One of the myths that surround, often people will say, well, you know, I believe in the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is the sort of God that you want to believe in. He's nice, he's cuddly, he's loving. The God of the Old Testament is a bad God, he's an angry God, he's out to get you, he's a judge. I don't believe in that God. But the God of the New Testament, I like that God. That God's a nice God. This is the same God. Is that really what the Bible says? I would want to say no. 
Following last week's masterclass of Washing Line Biblical Studies uh, from Libby, and if you weren't here for it, you missed a treat. Um, you missed Gemma um, putting, uh, I don't know how many pieces of paper. Um, John Talbot was down here controlling the line. I was just itching for him to pull the washing line so that it got higher and higher and out of Gemma's reach so that she couldn't actually peg uh, each of the pieces of paper on the washing line. But, but Libby did a masterclass in biblical studies, looking at the whole sweep of scripture in about 26 minutes. And my challenge this evening is to look in a similar amount of time at the theme of covenant and why it matters. And the theme of covenant actually is one of those big theological, biblical themes that really does make a difference. Because if we understand fully or begin to understand this term covenant and what it actually represents and what it means and what it tells us about God and his relationship with people, then it will fundamentally change the way in which we see God. It will fundamentally change the way in which we see ourselves as God's children. It will have implications for the way in which we look at the world. It will have implications for the way that we think about marriage. It will have implications for the way we think about the nation of Israel. It will have implications about the way in which we think about politics in the Middle East. It will have implications about the way in which we think about baptism and the way in which we think about communion. So it's not insignificant uh, in its implication. So firstly, what is a covenant and why does it matter? Well, the reality is that there are several covenants made in the Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testament. And in essence, it's a repetition of one original covenant. And so with Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 18, God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. Obviously, Noah bears a, bears a passing resemblance uh, to Russell Crowe. And um, that was a bizarre film. If you saw that film, uh, that was really odd, especially for Christians, because it took some Jewish myths and incorporated them into the telling of the story. Um, but Noah is told by God, I will establish my covenant with you. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18. Genesis, the first book in the Bible. It's the one that comes after the index um, with the list of all the books. I'm just being realistic. I know what people are like. I know what I'm like. Uh, the index is the least read book, uh, a page in a Bible, because people are always too embarrassed to look at it. But people took trouble to put it there so let's use it it will tell you the page number and it will tell you the order you don't get brownie points for knowing the order of the bible books um well i did but i was a baptist um <laughs> so several covenants in the bible god says to noah genesis 6 verse 18 but i will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark when the flood comes and the people that are in the ark noah and his family and the animals that he took into the ark are about to be released back out into the earth when the water has, has uh, shrunk back. God says again, Genesis 9 verse 9, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants. We see a covenant later in Genesis chapter 12, just a few chapters on, uh, with Abram, and then in the passage that we'll look at in a few minutes' time uh, with Abram. Uh, well, we have this, this amazingly uh, 
horrendous idea where, where Abram was, Abraham was eventually given this son, Isaac, and God says, well, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and I want you to take him up onto a mountain, and I want there to be a sacrifice. And Abraham takes his son going, we're going for a little walk, son, and they go up the hill, and, and we're going to have a sacrifice. And Isaac's the kid going, great, dad, where's the goat? And they get to the top of the mountain, and Abraham says, there's no goat. You're the sacrifice. And the biblical account tells us that it got this near, what we see in the picture. It got this close to where Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And then God says, I'm just testing you. Isaac is very relieved at this point uh, that it's just a test. And God again declares his covenant to Abraham. We'll look at that passage in further detail uh, in a while. Thirdly, with Moses in Exodus chapter 6, if you flip on uh, from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, uh, when God tells Moses that he's to go back into uh, Egypt where the people are held in slavery in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6 and chapters 19 through to 24, again and again, God says to Moses, I'm making a covenant with you. 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 You will be my people and I will be your God. The fourth time that we see a person given a covenant uh, relationship with God or, or from God is King David. We've already heard about Psalm uh, 51 when, when David um, sins, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and, and Psalm 51 is the psalm that was written uh, to help David express his sorrow and repentance to God. Well, in Psalm 89 verse three, David speaks about the covenant that God has made with him. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17, again, if you don't know where it is, look it up in the index. The index is the one before Genesis with the numbers of the pages of the books of the Bible. Have a look at it. See where 2 Samuel chapter 7 is. For some reason, English people call it 2 Samuel. Uh, Scottish people call it 2 Samuel. I don't know why. I've lived here for 20 years, but I still do not know why. It's called 2 Samuel in Scotland and America, and everywhere else it's called 2 Samuel. I don't know, but it is. But it is the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. David has this idea to build a house, a temple for God. And God says, you are not the person who is to build a house for me. It will be your son, King Solomon, who will do that. But God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will establish my covenant with you. And he reminds King David of the covenant agreement that he made with Abraham, that he made with Noah, that he made with Moses. And then finally, in the person of Jesus, he says, I have come to establish a new covenant. And in the Last Supper where he takes, he's celebrating the Passover with his friends, with his disciples in the upper room. Um, he takes, he takes the, the, the cup of blessing, the, the, I think it's the third cup. Uh, there are four cups in the Passover supper. And he takes the third cup, the cup of blessing, and he, and he gives it a new meaning. He's already taken the bread and said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Now he takes this cup of the four cups in the Passover supper, and, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
So Jesus now says there is a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, and it comes through me, Jesus says. It comes through my body. It comes through my blood. It comes through my death on the cross. This is the new covenant. A sacrifice has been made. A son has been killed. If you think about Abraham and Isaac. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, the new agreement, the new relationship between God and people, which isn't now just for the the nation state of Israel, the people of God, it's now for every human being who wants to come back to God the Father through my sacrifice on the cross, through my death, through my resurrection, through my ascension, we can all become the children of God. So that is what a covenant is and the times that we find the word occurring in the Bible. So what is a covenant and who makes it? Well, a covenant is made by God towards humanity. It's always from God to people. It's from God to Noah or Moses or Abraham or through Jesus or to David. A covenant is made by God to humanity. It is always God's idea and God's initiative. And a covenant, God's covenant, this is really important, God's covenant is based on one thing only. God's covenant is based on who he is, not on what we have done. God's covenant with people is based on who he is, not on what we have done. So God's covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with Noah and with David and then through Jesus, the consistent stream that runs all the way through them is that that it isn't dependent upon what Noah has done or, or Moses or Abram or David. Because if we read any of their lives in the pages of the Bible, or if we watch any of the films that have been made on their lives by Hollywood, whether it's Russell Crowe or Charlton Heston or Richard Gere or, or the, 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 the Christian Bale, I think, played King David in the last one, you see that here are frail, weak human beings who time after time after time after time after time get things wrong. Last Sunday, when we were responding um, to to Libby's washing line masterclass of biblical theology, uh, James Green used a a, a beautiful phrase in describing the the offer that that God makes. He says it's for screw-ups and heroes. For screw-ups and heroes. And I was so struck by that phrase because it's realistic. It's authentic. The Christian faith... The covenant that God offers to people is not for people who are perfect. It's not for people who are nice. It's not for people who are good. It's not for people who are religious. Because it's based not on what we have done. It's based on one thing. It's based on who God is. And in essence, the idea of the covenant is is basically saying God does not change. There's a verse elsewhere in the Bible that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and actually this idea that there's one God in the Old Testament, 
and one God in the New Testament, the covenant says no. God, his character, does not change. He is a God of holiness and justice and purity, yes. But he's also a God of love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, both in the Old Testament and in the New. The same consistent characteristics of who God is are seen in the Old and the New Testament, and he does not change. And covenants or promises, agreements, that's what the word means, are about commitment, love, and redemption. And they really revolve around, around one Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is this, heseth. Heseth. H-E-S-E-D in the English language. Heseth. Uh, the, the D at the end has a dot underneath it. So it means it's a th in the Hebrew. Heseth. And this, really, we haven't got a single word to replicate what this word heseth really means. It means faithful, steadfast, reliable, loyal, and eternal love. It's a unique type of love. It's the word that's translated in in, uh, the New Testament by the Greek word agape. Self-sacrificial, giving love, but consistent and loyal and steadfast and true and reliable and dependent. This is a love that does not change. This is the love that that keeps on loving. It's, It's the idea of the verses in the Old Testament that speak about the love of God, the steadfast love of the Lord uh, being new every morning. That's the heseth type of love. It's God's committed love, God's faithful God love, God's steadfast love, God's abounding love, God's reliable love, God's never-changing love is available every single day when we wake up. God's love is the same and it keeps on going. It is faithful, it is steadfast, it is reliable, it is loyal and it is eternal. One of the courses that we run alongside the, the Alpha course, we, we, we run different courses um, through P's and G's. We run the Alpha course, uh, but as you heard, uh, Libby mentioned the marriage preparation course that we run as well. It's, it's a great course. It, I, I, I'm biased because I run it. Um, and I, it's the best course, and, and it's great. But at one particular stage, I think it's the second week, we talk about what is a marriage relationship. And one of the things that we say in that course is that we speak about marriage as, as being a covenant, not a contract. There's a lot of uh, ideas that today are around marriage. Um, and, and sometimes you, you will hear, um, you know, particularly in Hollywood, uh, people signing prenuptial agreements uh, where they make a contract, they sign a contract um, that um, maybe um, uh, the, the, the husband... Um, is, hasn't got as much money as, as, as the wife. And the wife, in order to protect um, her property and to, to protect her money, uh, gets the husband, it's often the other way around, but uh, gets the husband to sign a contract, a prenuptial agreement, saying in the result of their marriage ending in divorce, he has no rights, he has no call over her money. And, and they agree to split... Um, the, 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 the house maybe, they agree to split the money, they agree to split their estate, and he doesn't get any of it. And it's a contract. 
And one of the things that we say in a marriage preparation course is that marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. Now, what's the difference? Well, a contract is between two parties and is dependent upon both parties each fulfilling their part. So before we did all this building work on this building, we entered into contracts uh, with builders and with subcontractors. And, and the contract that we, um, from memory, it was about that thick. It was a huge document. It was a contract between the builders and between ourselves. And we said, if you fulfill your part of the contract, if you do the building work, and if you spend money on our behalf um, doing the refurbishments and putting a balcony in and taking the pews out and putting chairs in and putting a new floor in and, and putting a, a stage in and lights and screens and, and building the halls, then we will do our part by paying you the money that is owed to you. They eventually did their part and we did our part and have paid them the money. And we had some negotiations over about 18 months trying to settle the contract. So that's what a contract is. A contract is between two parties where the, 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 the contract agreement is dependent upon both parties fulfilling their part. A covenant is different. A covenant is very different to a contract. Because what in essence is happening in marriage, which are expressed in, in, in the words of, of the marriage service, where the couple um, often will stand here looking at each other, and they will simply say the words after me, or, or, or Rich, or Libby, or James, who's leading the wedding service, and they will look at each other, holding hands, and say, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And they promise to love each other in sickness, in health, till death us do part. And in essence, what they're saying is not, I will love you if. I will love you if you do certain things. I will love you if you bring me a cup of tea in bed every morning. Or I will love you if you do the washing up. Or I will love you if you do the ironing. Or I will love you if you change the way in which you dress. Or I will love you if you conform to my way of looking at the world. There's that old, old story about uh, the couple who were getting married and, and the, the bride was very, very nervous and, and she was desperately uh, frightened that she would forget the words. And, and it was very simple. The night before the wedding, the, the, the minister said, it's very simple. You, you walk down the aisle. You walk up to the altar and then you sing a hymn. And then we start the service. So you walk down the aisle. You walk to the altar and then we sing a hymn. It's very simple. You walk down the aisle. You walk to the altar and then we sing a hymn. And the next day at the, at the wedding, as the, the bride was coming down, the guests were slightly horrified to, to hear the bride walking from the back of the church going, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. That is not what marriage is about. 
when I talk to couples who are getting married, if, if one of them says, oh yeah, I'm going to sort out, I mean, sometimes it can be helpful, you know, particularly um, uh, the, the bride-to-be will look at the, the, her fiancé and say, I'm going to sort out his wardrobe. And usually I'll say, good on you, because it needs it. You know, he needs some serious help, and that's okay. But if it's, if it's fundamentally changing his character, that's not going to work. Because marriage is about accepting each other as you are. Accepting each other as you are as you begin married life. And agreeing to love each other unconditionally. Neither is a marriage where you say, I will love you until. Not I will love you if, but neither is it, I will love you until. So I will love you until you start to put on weight. Or, which is a good job in my case. Um, I will love you until you become less physically attractive. Or I will love you until someone nicer comes along. Or I will love you until I fall out of love with you. Because that's a contract. Marriage is a picture, the Bible says, of the relationship between God and people. And therefore it's a covenant relationship. And in marriage, when the couple stand here and say the words to each other, they are committing themselves to love each other no matter what. And to stay married to that person as far as they are able until death separates them. Yes, there can be cases where abuse happens in a relationship and that's a different story. And, and that can mean that it's, it's healthier for that relationship to end. And the reality is that we live in a society where a third of marriages um, do end in divorce. And, and there is tragedy and there is sadness when that happens. Uh, the statistics are even worse in London. Two out of three uh, weddings end in divorce. Very simple. Don't get married in London. Uh, because it, it, the, the statistics are further against you if you get married in London. So do get married in Edinburgh because you've got a better chance of, of staying married. Um, but in marriage, you are a visual aid of God's love. And the love that you are a visual aid of is a love which is committed, faithful, unconditional, and loyal. Thirdly, very quickly, there is often a sign that accompanies a covenant. In the Old Testament, it was said that you cut a covenant. So we might say that you cut a deal. So there was a, a physical sign of the covenant that God made with people. So with Noah, the sign was a rainbow. God placed a rainbow in the sky and said, I will never again send a flood like that. I will never again wipe humanity off the face of the earth. No matter how bad, how sinful, how much you screw up as human beings, I will never again wipe humanity off the face of the earth and start again. And to remind you as a sign of the covenant for you, not for me, but for you, Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, that will remind you that God will never again send rain in such a way that the human race is wiped off the face of the earth. No matter how wet a Scottish summer gets, that rainbow sign still holds truth. With Abraham, the sign, as we'll see in a minute, was circumcision. With David, the sign very simply was the temple that his son, King Solomon, built. With Jesus, the sign was communion and baptism. With Paul in, in Colossians, uh, one, one of the letters that Paul wrote to the early, one of the, the early churches in a place called Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 9 to 15, Paul says that baptism 
has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> but that's the reality. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. But as we'll see very quickly as we go through this chapter, it's a reminder, it's a visual aid, a solemn commitment and covenant that has physical reminders and visual aids to remind us of God and his love and his promises. So what? Well, if you want to turn back very quickly in the last few minutes, we're going to look in that chapter of Genesis chapter 17 and four or five things that it tells us about God himself. The first thing from Genesis chapter 17 and verses 1 to 15 <coughs> God's promises can be trusted. When we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 17, it's 24 years since Abram has heard God's original call in Genesis chapter 12, when Abram was, was given that promise that God was going to bless Abram and he would uh, be blessed by God and, and he would be um, known by God and Abram uh, would be God's and God would be Abram's. He was living in a city and left his home, traveling north into the own. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all his possessions and people. And now age 99, God appears again and repeats the promise, but with one difference. In Genesis chapter 12, the covenant that Abram is given is private and it's personal. From now on, the covenant is public and it's known by everybody. As Abram lined up every male and circumcised them, that was a fairly public thing to do. It was very personal, very personal, but it was public. It was a visual aid. The people, the guys who were circumcised that day would have been reminded every single day that they were circumcised. But it wasn't just private and personal, now it was public. Secondly, God's promise requires a response. You see what God says in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. This is years before the law was given to Moses. But God says to Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with him. I'm going to remind you of the agreement, the unconditional, committed, faithful, steadfast love that I want to pour out on you and through you to millions upon millions of people down the centuries. But I want you in response to walk before me blameless. Literally, God says to Abram, I want you to walk or live before me with nothing to hide from me. That's what the literal meaning of the word is. To walk before God blameless is to walk before God with nothing to hide. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first response that they wanted to do was to hide from God. And if we're honest, it's one of the consequences of sin is that we want to withdraw from God. We want to keep things secret. We want to keep things in the dark. The New Testament reminds us again and again to bring things out of the darkness into the light so that they can be dealt with. Often when you're struggling with a particular sin, just naming it out before God 
can be incredibly powerful in reducing that thing or that habit of its power over you. Speaking it out to somebody else, to another human being, can be incredibly powerful because you're bringing it out from the secret dark place into the light and into the truth and to where it's known. The Hebrew word for that live before me with nothing to hide from me, the Hebrew word is lamim. It means whole, integrated. And God is calling Abram to live a whole, integrated, blameless life before him. Live before me, God says. If you're going to live in my covenant, I want you to live before me as, as people, yes, who, who, who make mistakes, yes, who get things wrong, but people who are blameless, people who live with things clear before me. If you're keeping something secret, why is that? Is it because you want to hide it from God? We, we often live life in such a way that we think we can hide things from God. And we become very good at hiding things from ourselves and even we think from God, even though he knows what's going on and he knows about everything. And he's actually waiting for us to take it from the secret dark place and to bring it out into the light. And it's that paradox that we looked at last Sunday morning. It's grace, a gift that costs everything. Undeserved grace that deserves a response. Unconditional love that requires obedience. Thirdly, the covenant that God gives with his people leads to a new life. Abram is given a new name, Abraham. Before this occurrence in Genesis chapter 17, he's known as Abram. The exalted father, that's what the translation means. Now he becomes Abraham, the father of many. And it's personal. It's between God and Abram. It's between God and you through the new covenant made through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Fourthly, the covenant that God makes and offers can cope with our lack of faith. Um, we had that amazing chapter from Hebrews chapter 11, read last Sunday evening. But that elsewhere in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, Abraham is described when God promises that he is going to have a son, a child. He's 99 years of age. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 12, he's described as as good as dead. And when God tells him that he's going to become a father, he's going to become a dad through his wife, Sarai, Abram falls down with hysterical laughter. He falls down twice in this, this passage, in Genesis 17. Verse 3, we're told that Abram falls down before God in worship. In verse 17, we're told Abram falls down before God in hysterical laughter. Because in that essence, he's saying to God, you're having a laugh. You're having a laugh. Me? Become a dad, age 99, Sarah, and we've been trying for years. Nowhere, nothing, zilch, nada, nothing, hopeless. He tries to circumvent God's promise with his, his servant. But God says, you will be a father through your wife, Sarah, and God can cope with a lack of faith. Maybe you are in a situation now, at the moment, where things look desperate. It does not depend upon your ability to believe. It does not depend upon your amount of faith. God's promises are true, irrespective of the amount of faith that you do or do not have. 
because God's covenant is solid, reliable, and dependable, and depends on who God is, not who we are. Because fifthly and finally, God's covenant is eternal. Verses 7, 8, 13, and 19 of chapter 17. The Hebrew word is olam. And really, in the Hebrew, it sort of means distant ages. We translate it as everlasting. It doesn't mean endless, as we perceive it. But it means everlasting, into the distance, in time and space. And that's God's covenant. Now, as I say, if you think that God's covenant with the people of Israel still um, applies today to the nation-state of Israel, I don't. But if you do, that will change the way in which you think about politics in the Middle East and the way in which you think about the nation of Israel today. Because if you equate today's nation-state of Israel with the Israel of the Old Testament, then you think, as some people think, particularly in the church, that Israel can do whatever it wants, particularly to the Palestinians. I don't think actually that is what the Bible says. But God's covenant still does hold today. But finally, the covenants we're told in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 find their fulfillment in Christ. Thousands of years of God's love and commitment focused on one person, Jesus. Focused on a son, not Isaac, but Jesus. Not a law, but grace but a promise given and a promise kept through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And in essence, the covenant that God makes says, I will be your God and you will be my people because I have loved you with an everlasting love, that heseth type of love. And no matter what you do, no matter what you say, there is nothing that you can do that will change my love for you. You can remove yourself from that covenant by the way in which you lead your lives, by turning your back on my love, by turning your back on my character, by turning my, your back on my faithfulness, by turning your back on my grace. But the promise remains the same. I have loved you with an olam type of love. I have loved you with an everlasting type of love. I have loved you with an endless, eternal, faithful, reliable utterly steadfast type of love that depends not on what you do but on who I am God says and you will be my people and I will be your God and that's the covenant that God made with Noah and that's the covenant that God made with Abram and renewed with Abraham that's the covenant that God made with Moses that's the covenant that God made with David, and that's the covenant that finds and found fulfillment in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the promise for you and for me is that God will be our God and we can be his people.